It's the Victorian Variety Show. The beneficial effects resulting from the employment of gymnastic exercises as a curative agent in cases of spinal deformity or other bodily weakness and contraction are so generally known and appreciated that an advocacy of the system is here quite needless. I shall therefore abstain from entering on the merits of the various systems comprehended in the category of mechanical assistance and confine myself to a definition of the class especially adapted for those suffering from vertebral deflection or other local disarrangement, as well as to the more general movements which tend to develop and restore the symmetry of the human form. It may seem that the simplicity of this remedy, consisting as it does in pure muscular action, is devoid of all interest and reduced to a mere display of physical power. And yet, if the attention be once awakened and fixed on the subject, there is an increasing charm involved in its principle. The fact being that on the exercise of the weak and suffering member, health and beauty are dependent. It is, as it were, an innate gift of nature, the capacity for helping and restoring herself. the Victorian Variety Show podcast, in which I take an in-depth look at aspects of life during the Victorian era that generally don't get as much attention as perhaps they should in an academic setting or in media representations of that time period. I like to choose these topics partly because I find them interesting and hopefully my listeners do too, but also because I find that very often something that happened over a hundred, over 150 years ago in many cases, inspired something either directly or indirectly that's an important part of many people's lives today. My name is Marissa and the excerpt I just read is taken from The Portable Gymnasium, a manual of exercises arranged for self-instruction in the use of the Portable Gymnasium, which was published by Gustave Ernst an orthopedic mechanist who, in 1861, invented the portable gymnasium, a predecessor to today's home gyms. I feel that this passage does a good job of setting the tone for this episode's topic, the popularity of physical fitness during the Victorian era and its influence on today's fitness culture, which I think many of us are familiar with regardless of whether you hit your local planet fitness on a regular basis or can't remember the last time you set foot in a gym. Personally, I don't think I've even been inside the gym at my apartment complex, which is about 20 feet outside my front door, since I toured the complex before I moved in here. But I do watch TV, and I have a theoretical understanding, you might say, of popular forms of fitness equipment and fitness gurus, as they're often called. And because the articles that I found so far opened my eyes not only to the number of similarities between 19th century fitness practices and today's, but also to just how much physical fitness can tie in with many cultural attitudes, I've decided to break my exploration of this topic up into two episodes. 
This week, I'm going to focus on the stages in which physical culture developed in the 19th century and some Victorian era fitness gurus. And in my next episode in two weeks, I'm going to look at how Victorian attitudes toward physical fitness intersected with religion, nationalism, and colonialism. Like a number of other topics I've discussed on this show, the interest in physical culture began several decades at least before the Victorian era. An article on the Movement Health website called What is the Physical Culture Movement? traces its beginnings back to the earlier stages of the Industrial Revolution in the late 1700s. Movement Health tells us that the economic transition from rural agriculture to urban industry led to more sedentary lifestyles and so-called diseases of affluence, such as gout, high blood pressure, and obesity. And as a result, many people with the means to do so started to look for ways to improve their health and well-being. But there were other factors that drove the development of the physical culture movement, which, according to Movement Health, happened in quote-unquote waves, which I'm acknowledging because I think they give my overview some structure, but for reasons that you're going to see in a few minutes, I'm not going to adhere to them too rigidly. The first wave began around the turn of the 19th century, after a German educator named Johann Christoph Friedrich Gutzmuths, who has been referred to as the quote-unquote grandfather of modern gymnastics, published a book entitled, and I apologize for any mispronunciations that I make in this episode, Gymnastik für die Jugend, or Gymnastics for Youth, in 1793. According to Wikipedia, the quote-unquote father of modern gymnastics was the Prussian-born Johann Friedrich Ludwig Christoph Jahn, a gymnastics educator who was credited with founding the German gymnastics movement. And since he was apparently a strong nationalist, even though I'm not really going to talk about him in this episode, I am planning to talk about him a bit more in my next episode. Good Smooth's book, which drew upon the ancient Greek pentathlon, military exercises, and traditional dancing, is considered one of the first books that formalized a systematic approach to exercise. And his work inspired the quote-unquote European gymnasts of the early 1800s, who, Movement Health explains, developed an exercise style that emphasized calisthenics and body weight and had a scientific interest in fitness and health, which led them to explore the idea of so-called exercise as medicine. In the 1900s, the work of the European gymnasts evolved into competitive gymnastics, physical therapy, physical education in schools, and the like. So hopefully, you're already starting to see the link between physical fitness then and now that I was just talking about. Following the first wave, it seems to me like a few key things happened toward the mid-19th century. First, a general interest in physical fitness began to spread. In Fitness Gurus and Muscular Christianity, How Victorian Britain Anticipated Today's Keep Fit Craze, James Stark traces the beginning of this period back to Donald Walker, who published a book called British Manly Exercises in 1837. 
The book begins with numerous illustrations of men engaging in a wide variety of physical activities, ranging from running to swimming to rowing and horseback riding, and then gives us detailed descriptions of the many ways in which one can engage in each type of exercise and, when applicable, the equipment used. Although a BBC article titled Manly Exercise Manual found at Cambridge College says that the book was targeted at wealthy readers, specifically gentlemen with sedentary lifestyles, Walker devotes considerable attention to activities members of the middle class could do at little to no expense, such as walking or swimming. That said, the Victorian era was a time of great scientific and technological advancement in many fields, including physical fitness, hence the appearance of home exercise equipment in the decades that followed, such as the aforementioned portable gymnasium in the early 1860s, which could be used for upward and lateral extensions and tractions and arm and head rotations, to name just a few exercises. According to Ernst, quote, the portable gymnasium is constructed in the form of an oblong pedestal of either best steel or mahogany wood and varies in height from six to nine feet six inches and is usually seven by eight or nine by 14 inches deep and wide. The pedestal resting on a firm base proportionally larger than itself. The hole is secured to the wall of any sufficiently lofty room by strong iron brackets and screws in such a manner that it may be removed with the greatest ease and without injury to the wall." End quote. For those looking for exercise opportunities outside the home, open-air gyms offer the public healthy places to exercise during this time such as the Royal Patton Gymnasium, which opened in Edinburgh in 1865. According to an article on the Scotland's People website called Our Records, a Victorian Gymnasium, the Royal Patton regularly attracted approximately 15,000 people a day with not only swimming pools, springboards, vaults, and stilts, but also features like the quote-unquote, Great Sea Serpent, a giant circular rowing machine that seated up to 600 people and was accompanied by a march performed by Band of the Edinburgh Rifle Volunteers. And as someone with a fondness for sea serpents, which I discussed back in October, I'd probably hit the gym a lot more if I found one that offered something like this. In addition, exercise classes became available in the late 19th century thanks to individuals like Scottish medical practitioner James Cantley, who initially developed exercise routines based on stretches accompanied by baths and massages that could be performed at home. However, in 1889, Cantley founded the British Institute of Physical Training, which offered classes to men and women of all ages. Stark explains that although people who attended these classes were encouraged to practice at home, they were also advised to return regularly to learn new exercises. And before I go any further, I do think it's worth emphasizing that despite the existence of so-called manly exercise and such, it seems like women were actively encouraged to participate in Victorian-era physical culture. 
Ernst states in the introduction of his manual that all of the exercises in the book are intended for the use of members of both sexes. And in the illustrations, even though the women are wearing ankle-length, long-sleeved dresses, as you might expect given everything that we hear about it not having been proper for Victorian women to show their ankles, the men are clad in suit coats and it looks like their shirts are buttoned all the way to the top, which seems to me as just as uncomfortable than, as what the women were wearing. Also, age doesn't seem to have been considered a barrier to staying fit during this time. According to Stark, Cantley recommended many of his exercises to people over age 50 because he felt that they strengthened and toned the body in ways that didn't require much exertion. So, the mid-19th century seems to me like a time when people began to realize that exercise was something that might benefit pretty much everybody, regardless of their gender, age, or even social class, because the Scotland's People article suggests that even members of the working classes, whose lifestyles you could probably say were far less sedentary than those of the upper and middle classes, still could take advantage of the cleaner conditions offered by open-air gymnasiums like the Royal Patent. However, this period was also notable due to the rise of fitness celebrities, or gurus, often in the form of so-called strongmen, and the movement health piece refers to the second wave of the physical culture movement as the era of strongman athletes. Renowned strongmen toured America and Europe, stunning audiences by lifting enormous barbells, bending steel, breaking chains, and posing in ways that highlighted their physiques, and are considered more or less the predecessors to today's bodybuilders and weightlifters. One prominent example of a Victorian-era strongman influencer, you might say, was Prussian-born Eugen Sandow, who, according to Vanessa Barford and Lucy Townsend in Eugen Sandow, The Man with the Perfect Body, based his adult notions of the ideal physique on classical Greek statues he'd seen in museums as a child. Sandow, who reportedly was born Friedrich Wilhelm Mueller, and I haven't found anything yet indicating why he changed his name, started his career touring Europe as a circus performer, but became an, you might say, instant success in a London strongman competition in the late 1880s. Sandow soon became a staple in the London music hall circuit, as well as a sex symbol. According to Barford and Townsend, quote, ladies would pay a surcharge to attend private viewings backstage, where they were encouraged to fondle his muscles, end quote. And it's believed that Sandow had a gay following as well. However, many men in general sought to emulate Sandow's physique, which Sandow capitalized on by, among other things, establishing the Institute of Physical Culture in 1897, where he offered personal coaching, founding a magazine called Physical Culture, and patenting his own line of dumbbells. David Waller, an author cited by Barford and Townsend, describes Sandow as, quote, an early modern celebrity, 
An example of a personal brand like a Madonna or David Beckham, end quote. And since sometimes when researching the Victorian era, I can't help but occasionally wonder who would be an Instagram or TikTok influencer if they were around today. Queen Victoria and Charles Dickens are two that immediately come to mind. I feel pretty confident adding Sandow to that list. And then there was Bernard McFadden, an American contemporary of Sandow's, who claimed that he'd overcome the ill health he'd suffered as a child by adhering to a vegetarian diet and lifting weights regularly. And, like James Cantley, developed a system that offered exercises suitable for men and women of all ages. In his first book, McFadden's Physical Training, an illustrated system of exercise for the development of health, strength, and beauty, McFadden intersperses photos in which he displays his physique in classical poses, often wearing little more than a tight set of undershorts, with inspirational sounding passages like this one. Quote, strength, health, manly and womanly beauty and vigor, the very foundation upon which are built all happiness, all success, and all that makes life productive of glorious results, is attainable for all. What a grand possession it is. Life without it is a humdrum existence. No intense pleasures, no strong emotions, no fiery ambitions come to those who have not this good and perfect gift. It is the very sauce to existence. It is the fire which incites to efforts that lead beyond mediocrity in this race of life. You who have it, not try for it now. You who have children growing up into manhood and womanhood, remember your imperative duty and make them, in the true sense, men and women, end quote. So, on the one hand, I think it's easy to picture audiences during the Victorian era captivated by strong men who appeared larger than life, both literally and figuratively. But their savvy marketing of products geared toward regular folks strikes me as very similar to what we see today when we turn on the TV and see, say, Jillian Michaels trying to sell us something, or if you've ever picked up an issue of Shape magazine that was at least a few months old in a doctor's office waiting room, at least before the pandemic. A lot of doctor's offices got rid of outdated reading material in waiting rooms during quarantine. And I don't know about you, but none of the waiting rooms I've been to in the past few years have brought them back. But I digress. Although strong men like Sandow and McFadden had a big influence on the men and women who came to see them perform, it also seems to me that the interest in fitness that started to take shape, pun intended, in the 1830s paved the way for strongman culture. I'm not trying to make a chicken or egg type reference here, but I think it's a good example of how, in the Victorian era, we see trends developing around the same time that intersect in fascinating ways and, in some cases, resemble trends that we still see today. And then, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, the somatics physical culture movement, which the movement health piece refers to as the third wave of the physical cultural movement, started to develop. 
Wikipedia defines somatics as, quote, a field within bodywork and movement studies which emphasizes internal physical perception and experience, end quote. And its approaches are based on the soma, or, quote, the body as perceived from within, end quote. This movement combined techniques from gymnastics, the performing arts, especially dance, and medicine. And according to Wikipedia, it has been influenced by Eastern practices like yoga. Movement Health portrays somatics physical culture as a response that sought to integrate mind and body to a greater extent than gymnastics, which were increasingly being used in athletic and military training, and strongman culture with its heavy emphasis on the physical form. One prominent individual in this field was Genevieve Stebbins, an American stage performer and educator who, in the late 1880s, developed a system of so-called harmonic gymnastics that was influenced by Francois Delsart, French performing arts instructor who classified the physical expression of emotion into what you could call laws and principles. Another practice that you've probably heard of, Pilates, grew out of this movement starting in the early 1920s, although according to Wikipedia, contemporary forms of Pilates place a greater emphasis on quote-unquote correct physical technique than earlier forms. So the somatics physical culture movement seems very diverse, and I'll probably touch upon it again in my next episode, but I think you can already see that it's still very much with us today. On that note, I'm going to close this discussion of Victorian era physical culture for now, but I would love to know what you think. Email me at thevictorianvarietyshow at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter if it's not a subscription-only platform by the time you're listening to this at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1. And since, based on what I'm seeing about Twitter, it looks like I'd better revive the Mastodon account I started last year but haven't been updating, you can follow me over there at marissad at is.nada.live. And if you'd like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. If you would like to become a monthly supporter of this podcast, which is a brand new feature, you can now do that for as little as 99 cents a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash support. And if you would like to make a one-time donation, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash marissa df13 or on my Linktree page at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show, or on the Good Pods app. And finally, I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support and feedback. I'm just amazed time and again by the kind words and encouragement that I get. And I'm always looking to try new things and make this show better. I really hope you're enjoying learning about this topic. 
and I'm excited about going deeper into the cultural implications of the Victorians' interest in physical culture in two weeks. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with another excerpt from McFadden's Physical Training, which I chose because it has what I think is a triumphant tone that helps to end this episode on a positive note and also sets the stage for some of what I'm planning to talk about next time. And also because, I'll be honest, it's just fun reading from this text. Who will say that the cultivation of physical vigor does not elevate and broaden humanity both mentally and physically? It annuls the influence of petty nothings. It clears the brain. It thrills one with joy, with happiness. Under its natural, exhilarating effects, the blues disappear mysteriously. The cross and crab dyspeptic loses his ill temper and surprises his family with his kindness and good nature. Murky dissenters and chronic growlers just taste of life from this standpoint. Clear your system of accumulated corruption from inactivity and live, yes, live in the true sense of the word. Feel the inspiring, almost heavenly rewards of following the great laws of health. Then can one taste the sweets of this life. Then, and then only, can one enter that realm of happiness revealed in happy dreams.